right, last Sunday of Advent, so we've talked about uh, preparing our hearts for a surprise. We've talked about preparing to wait. Last week we shifted and we looked less at how to prepare for what God wants to do in us and more how to be prepared for what God wants to do through us. Jesus is coming again. We have a responsibility to prepare the way for him. So we talked about preparing to be preparers. And today we want to look more uh, directly at the second coming. Jesus is returning and we want to have hearts that are ready for that. You can think of his second coming similar maybe to a woman who's pregnant. She knows she's going to have a baby, but she doesn't know the exact time, and that's similar. We know Jesus is returning, but we don't know the exact moment. And just like if a a mom-to-be waits until she's feeling contractions to prepare and to get ready, it's kind of too late. And the same thing is true for us. If we wait until Jesus returns, until we see him again, it's too late to prepare. It's too late to get ready. And even as you're thinking about Christmas... One of the ways you can most identify with Mary and Joseph and Zachariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon and the other people we've been talking about this month is to realize in many ways you're in the same place and I'm in the same place that they are. They were waiting for Jesus' first coming. We're waiting for his second. But the thing that's similar is God had made them a promise. I'm going to send a Messiah. But they didn't know when. And so they had to be ready. And God has promised us the Messiah is coming again. Jesus is coming again. But we don't know when. And so we have to be ready. Jesus actually talks a good bit about his second coming. In Matthew 24, he says, This is the kind of person I'm looking for when I return. I'm looking for a faithful and wise servant. Someone who's doing what I've asked him to do while I'm gone. A faithful and wise servant. And then he gives some parables where he explains, or paints a picture maybe is a better word, of what it means to be faithful and what it means to be wise. And so we're going to look at two of those parables this morning, explaining or describing those two key characteristics that Jesus is looking for. And to remind you, a parable is a, real, a true-to-life story. It's something made up, but the, the, the audience would understand it. There would be connection. They would say, I could put myself in that person's shoes. I know the situation that you're talking about. And parables convey one major spiritual truth. Not every detail has a spiritual application. Some of the details are just, it's just local color. It's just to make the story sticky so people could remember it better. And the truth in a parable is often, we'll call it kind of quote-unquote hidden. Uh, There's a story that's going along and Jesus usually throws a twist in, something that the audience would not expect. And that kind of gotcha moment or that twist was designed to wake them up, to hear this truth that maybe they were unprepared to hear otherwise. So he couches the truth in a story. It, It kind of gets him behind their intellectual defenses and then the truth kind of is, is unfolds before them, and hopefully there's an opportunity to respond. So we're going to look at two parables. The first one starting in Matthew 25, verse 1. This is about um, being wise. The second one's about being faithful. At that time, so that's at the time when Jesus returns, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both you and us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready, excuse me, the virgins who were 
ready, went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. So Jewish wedding, bride and her bridesmaids would get ready at her parents' house. That's where a girl would live until she got married. So she and her bridesmaids would get married at, or excuse me, would get ready at her parents' house. And the groom and his entourage would come to his bride's parents' house and get her and the rest of her wedding party and lead them to the wedding venue, which most likely was his parents' house. If he happened to have his own home, they would go there, but most, most guys didn't. And so they would go to his parents' house. So you're going from the bride's parents' house to the groom's parents' house. And the bridesmaids in, in that bridal party, they would know the day that the wedding was going to take place and when the groom was coming, but they wouldn't know the exact moment. He may get hung up. There were some details that he had to take care of. And so he couldn't be exactly sure when he would arrive. And so oftentimes this procession from bride's house to groom's house would take place at night. There's no street lights. Nobody's got a flashlight. The torches or the lamps that these bridesmaids have, that's, that's lighting the way so they can get from point A to point B. It's an important job. And so everything's kind of as you would expect. You have these 10 bridesmaids, these 10 young women. I'm not going to call them virgins. I'm going to call them young women. They're 12 or 13 or 14 years old. And they're there. They've been invited by the bride to be a part of this. They have oil. Let's say they all have the oil that's in their lamp, however much that is. But the groom is delayed unexpectedly. Five of them have brought extra oil and five haven't. When they hear that the groom is coming, they all wake up, they've fallen asleep, and the five who are prepared put the oil in their lamps. And these five who don't have extra oil say, hey, share, share with us. And they say, no, there might not be enough. You go to the store and buy some. And when they go to the store, the groom comes, and this procession goes back to his house. The wedding starts, and he shuts the door. And that would have been a bit unusual. But then when the bridesmaids come, now remember, these are bridesmaids. Like they, they know the people who are involved in this wedding. And they knock on the door and say, let us in. And the groom says, no. I don't know you. Get away from me. I don't know who you are. That would have been a shock to the first audience. The whole village would have been invited to the wedding to think that you're going to cut out five people who are part of the wedding party. That's a significant response to them not having enough oil. So at that point, people say, well, that doesn't seem right. Why didn't the five who had more oil, why didn't they share? They're Christians, right? That's what we're supposed to be. How come they weren't generous? Remember, it's a parable. It's made up, and there's only one spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth in this is to be prepared. It's not to be kind and generous. That's not the truth that's being conveyed. But practically, let's say you have extra oil, and you have enough oil to last you for half an hour. Or for an hour, we'll say. You have enough to last for an hour. And if you share with me, then I've got 30 minutes worth and you've got 30 minutes worth. We've got twice as much light for 30 minutes. we got no light for the second 30 minutes. And we're walking from bride's house to groom's house. And we don't know exactly how long it's going to be. And what if we all run out of oil? And then we don't have any light. That ruins a wedding. They can't share. They can't share. It cuts the amount of time that there'll be light for this procession spiritually, what we need to take from that is you can't ride on anybody else's coattails. We're each responsible for our own hearts before the Lord. 
We each need to be prepared, and I can't rely on your preparedness to get me through. I have to have roots that are deep enough in the Lord to stand firm until the end. And that's what this parable is teaching. Do you, are you ready to wait as long as it takes? The difference between the wise and the foolish is just their preparation. There's no indication that the wise had a stronger relationship or more devotion or more love. They just were better prepared. They had more oil. Wisdom says, if you know the groom is coming, but you don't know when, have enough oil for the worst case scenario. Have enough oil to get you all the way through till the sun comes up. The, the, the wise did that and the foolish didn't. And that's what differentiated them from one another. And the consequences were devastating. For those who didn't have enough oil to, 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 to be a part of that wedding procession. And the same thing is true for us. One of my great fears when I think about the church in Marietta and the church in the West is I don't know how strong our faith is. I don't know how deep our roots go. It doesn't cost us anything to follow Jesus. It's not inconvenient even. It's almost part of our culture in some ways, especially in the Bible Belt. And I don't know, do we have the tenacity of faith to stand firm through difficult times and suffering. When I read about the end, and we don't know when the end is coming, but when I read about it, it doesn't seem very fun to me. False prophets and false Christs who will lead people astray in wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes, and that's just the birth pains that we're all living through now, but then Christians handed over to authorities to be persecuted and to be killed, and nations hating Christians. In wickedness increasing and the love of many growing cold so that only those who stand firm to the end will be saved. I wonder how many of, the, how many of those people are, are, are us? Is it us? Are we, are we ones who stand firm to the end? We've never, most of us have, have never been faced with any adversity because of our relationship with Jesus. We may have had difficult times, yes, but difficult times because we're following Jesus, No. And so what happens if that becomes our reality? It, are, are our roots deep enough? Is our faith strong enough? Our relationship robust enough to carry us through? We've created this whole theology that says God will rapture us up into heaven before anything bad happens. All around the world and all throughout time, Christians have suffered for their faith to the point of dying. But not us. We're Americans and God loves us the most. And so when things get hard for us, He's going to come and get us out of it. We're not ready, many of us. We have a theology of suffering that says God's going to deliver us from every difficulty. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. If you're not a, uh, prepared for the times when he doesn't, when he doesn't deliver you from, he wants to deliver you through, you're not going to make it. And it scares me to think of the people who aren't going to make it. We need to develop roots that are deep enough that if we live during those difficult times or if even in our own life we experience suffering or adversity because of our faith in Jesus, we don't quit. We don't bail. We talk about the parable of the soils oftentimes and I say I feel like we're the crowded soil because of our affluence. We have all these weeds that choke out the gospel and that's true, but we can also be the shallow soil or the rocky soil. The gospel is received with great joy, Jesus said, but then when difficulty or persecution comes because of the word, those people fall away. That's these five young women. 
They were excited to be bridesmaids. They didn't have enough oil to see them all the way through to the end. If your belief, your theology, your approach says God's going to deliver me from any difficulty, what happens when he doesn't? Wouldn't it be better to be prepared to have a faith that's strong enough, to have roots that are deep enough that would see you through difficulties? And then if God delivers you from them, it's great. That's gravy. If Jesus comes back and, it's not, and, and we don't before those difficult times happen, for whatever reason he does rapture us up into heaven before that, that's great. You're not, you're not out anything for being prepared. But if you're not prepared, the consequences of not standing firm to the end are devastating. How do we develop those deep roots? We've talked about this before. It's a relationship, and there's only one way, and it's by spending intentional time. Just like every single relationship that you have, the only way to strengthen it is to give time to it. That's it. There are no shortcuts. There are no other options. Any relationship that you have, if you want that relationship to grow, you invest in that relationship. And the same thing is true in your relationship with Jesus. And so my challenge to you moving into 2019 is to pick one of those four disciplines on the screen. Just pick one and commit to a greater level of investment in that one discipline. Don't pick off four. It's too many. Just pick one. Recognize 2 Corinthians 1.21 says it's God who strengthens us. God's the one who causes us to stand firm in Jesus. And the way he causes us to stand firm is through those spiritual disciplines. That's what deepens your relationship with Jesus. There's no magic formula. It's just time. It's time in prayer. It's time in the word. It's time in worship. It's time reflecting. That's what grows you in your relationship with him. So pick one. If you currently pray 10 minutes twice a day, certainly don't tell me that you're going to pray for an hour and a half five days a week. It's not going to happen. Don't set yourself up for failure in that way. You don't have to be a hero. Just take the next step. If my version of exercise is running to the mailbox, I don't need to sign up for a marathon next month. It's not going to happen for me. And the same thing is true with these spiritual disciplines. You want to grow, but you don't want to set the bar so high that there's no way you're going to meet it. You're going to fail. Recognize that. Commit to getting, kind of getting back up and trying again, but don't set the bar so high that you're never going to make it. So pick one and invest it for you, whatever's a greater level. Don't think about anybody else. Just in your own life, what's the next step for you? If you need help kind of navigating that, you can grab me or one of the other pastors and we'd be happy to help you. We don't have time to do that this morning to go through all of those. If you want to develop deeper roots, if you want a faith that stands firm to the end, you have to invest time in your relationship. You're not gonna, it's not going to be an overnight transformation, but over the course of time, you'll recognize your faith is stronger, your devotion is deeper, and you are, you are becoming one who can withstand difficulty because of your relationship with him. Second thing, what does it mean to be faithful? So that's what it means to be wise, to be prepared, to wait for a long time, to have roots that are deep enough, or have enough oil until the groom comes back, to be faithful. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey. So this is when Jesus returns. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them, and to one he gave five bags of gold, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who received five bags of gold went at once, put the money to work, and gained five more. So also the one with two gained two more. 
But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts. The man who'd received five bags brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold, and I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. I've gained two more. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And the man who received one bag of gold came. Master, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him who gave it to the one who has ten bags and give it to the one who has ten bags. Whoever has will be given more and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we have a rich man who gives three of his servants money. And he comes back after a long time and says, what did you do with what I gave you? Two of the guys have doubled their money and they receive this reward. Well done. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the twist. This servant who'd received one bag of gold doesn't do anything with it. He goes and buries it. And he's not just not responsive to the master. He actually blames his master for his lack of responsiveness. What he says in essence is, I buried the money because you're a jerk. And I was afraid. That's what he says. You're a hard man. You reap what you haven't sown. And so I buried the money. And the master's response is strong. He takes this one bag of gold, gives it to the guy who has 10. That doesn't seem fair. And then he says to him, I'm cast you out to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you know where that place is. And that's where this guy is punished because he doesn't respond well to, this, to the master's initial instructions to do something with the money that he's given him. At that point, we can say, hold on, time out. That doesn't seem right. The master's a jerk. And so what if the guy really was afraid? What if he lost it, the money? And then how would the master have responded then? I can get why he would do that. Remember, it's a parable, and a parable has one point, and the point of this parable is how to be a faithful steward, not how to work for a jerk. That's not what this parable is about. Practically, notice the master neither affirms nor denies the statements that the servant says about his character. But if the servant truly believed that, his actions don't make any sense. If you truly believed that you had a master who was greedy who took whatever he could get, how could you ever think he would be okay with you burying his money? Nothing about what this servant says about the master's character lines up with what the servant actually does. It would be like if you had a kid and he doesn't study for a test and he fails the test and you say, why did you fail? And he said, well, the teacher gives really hard tests and she asks questions that are obscure and tricky and so I just didn't study. That make any sense. If your teacher gives hard tests, then you study for them. You don't not study. It doesn't make any sense. If that's what you truly believe, that the master is this way, 
It doesn't make sense. And, but spiritually for us, what we need to know is whether the master was a jerk or not is irrelevant. God's not. But what we can learn from this is none of us can make an excuse. Well, we're all going to have to give an account for the life that we've lived. And in that moment, standing before God, we're not going to be able to say to him, it's actually your fault that I turned out the way I turned out or that I lived the way that I lived. You didn't give me enough to work with or you gave me too much. Or I was unclear on what exactly you wanted. Or I kind of feel like you're unfair in general. None of those things work. We're all responsible for our hearts, and we're responsible for the lives that we lead. And when we stand before him, we're going to have to give an account. And you can hear that, and that can feel like pressure to perform. But don't notice what the master rewards is obedience, not results. The guy that brought back four bags and the guy that bring, brought back ten bags, that's a lot more. It's 150% more. Significantly more bags. They get the same reward. Well done. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. He's not rewarding the results. He's rewarding the obedience. And so as you think about your own life, you don't need to feel pressure to produce. None of us can produce spiritual fruit in our own life. None of us can produce spiritual fruit in the lives of other people. None of us can produce spiritual fruit in our community on our own. That's God's responsibility. Our responsibility is to be faithful with what he's given to us. It's to be obedient. It's to recognize God's given me things and I need to use those things in accordance with his desires. That's what he's rewarding. Obedience, not results. Don't hear that as pressure. Some people say, well, what if I lose what God has given to me? In the Bible, the kingdom of God, the only way you lose anything is by holding on to it. That's the only way you lose. The things that you cling to you will lose everything that you give, you'll get back. You can't outgive him. Jesus says in Luke, God gives back to us, pressed down, shaken together, and running over into our laps. There's no way to outgive God. Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life must lose it. And whoever loses their life for his sake will save it or will find it. Jim Elliott, famous missionary, he is no fool who gives what he can't keep in order to keep what he can't lose. The only way you lose anything in the kingdom is by holding it tightly. Everything that you give will be given back to you. And so just like I would challenge you, identify one spiritual discipline and go deeper in that discipline in 2019. For three months or for six months, my hope would be 12, but I know that's a long time. That's a lot to bite off. I would say similar when it comes to being faithful. Identify what has God given you. People talk about the, these three T's. It's just easy to remember. Time, talent, and treasure. Identify those three things. Pick one. And then make a commitment to give in that area more intentionally than you've given up to this point. That's what makes you a faithful servant. It makes you a wise servant to develop deep roots. It makes you a faithful servant to be obedient to give away what you've received from the Lord. Think about your time. You say, I don't have any. You have 24 hours. And you may say, I have 25 hours worth of stuff to do. Is there a greater expression of faith for you to then say to the Lord, I don't have any time. I'm gonna, but I'm still going to say, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Money. I don't have any money. It's all spent. 
I get paid on the 30th, it's spent on the 20th. What do you want me to do? Is there a greater expression of faith than for you to say, God, what do you want me to do? I don't feel like I've got enough. What do you want me to do with this? Gifts. Some of you feel like, I didn't, get, I didn't even get one bag of gold. He gave me a nickel. You don't feel like you got anything. Everybody has natural gifts. If you're a Christian, you have spiritual gifts. But just think about the natural. That's Eric Little up there on the screen. And he was the chariots of fire guy. He was an Olympic gold medalist in 1924. And he famously said, God made me fast. God made me fast. And so he uses his ability as a runner to advance the kingdom. Can you identify what God made you? God made you smart. God made you empathetic. God made you persevering. God made you hospitable. What did he make you? And again, we're not even talking about spiritual gifts now, just your natural bent and wiring. And can you use that? Can you say to him, God, I I don't feel like this is much, but it's all I've got. It's what Bo was saying. I don't feel like I got much. It's a, it's a Ziploc full of change, but I'll give you what I have. How would you want to use that? I would strongly encourage you. If you want to be ready for Jesus' return, then you want to be a wise and faithful servant. To be wise is to develop roots that are deep enough that you can stand firm into the end. And to be faithful is to take what God has given you and to use it to advance his kingdom in the earth. Pick one spiritual discipline and commit to growing in that area in 2019. Pick one area of your life where you can say, this is something I've received from the Lord, and commit to trying to use it in greater level. And don't get hung up on the results. What God rewards is obedience. doesn't matter how things turn out. What matters is your willingness to give in that area. All right, here's how we're going to close. We've got a couple of minutes. You may want to respond to what I shared, and that's fine. But um, the big things that I want to do are two things. One, my phrase this morning is if your heart is heavy or your mind is full, we want to pray for you. As you think about the next couple of days with Christmas coming up, if your heart is heavy or your mind is full, we want to pray for God to stir joy in your heart and give you peace in your mind. And you may think that whatever's making your heart heavy or your mind full is trivial, and that doesn't matter. If it's filling your mind or weighing down your heart, then we want to pray. And so I want to strongly encourage you to come forward and allow the teams up here to pray for you. Nobody's going to try to fix anything. Nobody's going to give you advice. They're just going to pray. The second thing is if you're not coming forward for prayer, then you're going to be someone who prays. If you were here four weeks ago, we had our children and our students and our adults write on these gift tags. Here's, a, here's something I want God to do in my life over the month of December. Our Tuesday morning prayer group has been praying for those, and now we as a body are going to take a few minutes and pray. So if you're on the brick side, if you would reach under your chair, there's a bucket or a basket that has gift tags and grab a few. There's hundreds of gift tags and there are more gift tags than there are people. So take more than one and then just pass the bucket to the middle. And what we want you to do, if you're not coming forward because your heart's heavy or your mind is full, then I want you to spend this time while Bo leads us in worship to pray. You don't have to know the people. God knows the people. You just pray for him to work. And you may say, this is a silly request. You don't get to decide. You just pray for what's written on that card, and you ask God to work in the hearts of the people who are, uh, whose lives are expressed there. So I'm going to say a prayer. Bo's going to come back. If you're on ministry teams, if you could come forward. Let me see how many we have. I would like us to have six teams. So if we don't have six, 
and you're on the ministry team, but not for this week, then you come forward as well. I want to make sure that we have enough people to cover heavy hearts and full minds. All right, I'm going to say a prayer, and then you guys can respond as you feel led. You can stay seated during this song to pray, but uh, just be aware of people who may be trying to slip by you to come forward and don't make that uh, difficult for them. Just be aware of that as you're, uh, as you're praying. God, I pray for every man and woman in this room. I pray that each and every one of us would be people who stand firm and to the end, that each one of us would be people who are good stewards of all that you've given us. We want to be wise and faithful servants. We want to be ready for your return. If that happens during our lifetime, we want to be ready. And if it doesn't, we're not out anything by being ready. So God, would you prepare us for your return as we look forward to celebrating your first coming over the next 48 hours. Would that celebration prompt us just to do an inventory in our own hearts and make sure that we're prepared for your second coming? God, I pray for those whose hearts are heavy this morning. I pray that you would stir your joy in them. I pray for those whose minds are full and that you would give them peace. God, I pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit and you would minister to each and every one of the people who is represented on these gift tags, the heart cries of children and students and adults. Would you give us faith to believe that you will work in these situations here in the next week or so? In Jesus' name. Amen. You guys come forward as you need to. The rest of y'all take some time and pray.